has just been betrayed, abandoned, sentenced, and is now walking to his execution. Along the way, he has these three encounters. The foreigner, Simon from Cyrene. The faithful, the daughters of Jerusalem. And finally, the filchers, the thieves on the cross. Let's look at the first encounter. Simon. Verse 26 says, as the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. First, you must understand that crucifixions in this day were always done in public. They wanted to intimidate the populace. They wanted to let the community know this is the kind of thing that happens to people who break the law or resist the government. So they would make the person who was being crucified carry their own cross through the street, putting them on public display, putting them on public shame, and also as a warning to everyone watching. So Jesus had to carry his own cross through the streets, and then they approached the hill, and he had to make the ascent up Mount Calvary. However, he's lost so much blood previously at the whipping post. They beat him so badly at the whipping post. Uh, one Bible historian says they beat him to the point that his inner organs, his entrails, were peeking through the holes in his skin. He had lost so much blood that when he gets to the base of the hill to make the ascent, he's too weak to even stand up. So he'll stand up and then stumble up under the weight of the cross and then stand up, take a couple of steps and then stumble under the weight of the cross. So the Roman soldiers, they're tired. They're wanting to hurry the process along. So they just pick some random person out. They go, hey, you, come here. You carry this cross. The person happened to be this man by the name of Simon from Cyrene. And it's little details like this that prove the Bible isn't just legend or a made-up story. First of all, if you were making up the story and Jesus was your hero, in that day and age, you would never put a foreigner in the story linking him to your hero carrying the hero's cross. I'll remind you in the days of the Bible, people, especially in Jerusalem, were not very kind to foreigners. They didn't have a respect for foreigners. In fact, they feared cultures that were different and separate from their own. A lot of people still have that same attitude today. But it's these little details that let you know this is a real historical event. It really happened. Mark, in his gospel account, brings up Simon of Cyrene in Mark 15, 21. If you'll look at that with me real quick. It just has one little thing I want to grab. Mark 15, 21. Look what Mark says. He said, a certain man from Cyrene, Simon. Then he adds this little addendum. The father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, Every commentary I've read says the same thing about that little verse. It says there's no way Mark would have included Alexander and Rufus, the children of Simon of Cyrene, unless he knew them personally. And unless he knew that the people reading his book would also know of them. You know what this means. The books of Luke and Mark were written 40 years after the crucifixion. So Simon, he comes on the scene. He's coming in from out of town. He goes into the city. He's never met Jesus. He's never heard Jesus preach. He's never seen Jesus perform a miracle. He's a stranger, a foreigner, has no idea who this guy is. He walks in the city. He sees a crowd of people following a man who's carrying a cross. They're obviously putting on an execution, and he's just a face in the crowd. And then randomly, the soldiers point him out and say, you carry the cross. And I started thinking about this. The cross had to have been stained with Jesus' blood already because he was a bloody mess leaving the whipping post. So Jesus had carried it all the way through the city, so it's got Jesus' blood all over it. And Simon, this foreigner, this stranger, has never heard anything about it. He's got to pick up the bloody cross 
of Jesus Christ. And the Bible said they made him carry it behind Jesus. So now Simon is following Jesus. He's following the bloody footprints of the master of the universe as he's walking up the hill to his execution. And as Simon is following Jesus, this man he's never met or heard about, he's listening to people from the crowd hurl insults at him. If you're really who you say you are, deliver yourself. If you're really the king of the Jews, show us. Put on a display now. He's watching his people spit at Jesus and throw garbage and refuse at Jesus. And then Simon's there as they're driving spikes through Jesus' hands and feet. He's there as they hoist him up on the cross and he hears the agony as all of Jesus' body weight comes down on the nails. And then he hears this man he's never seen that he just carried the cross for cry out with a loud voice and say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And it impacted Simon so much, never heard a message, never attended a service or a crusade, that one eyewitness account of what was happening impacted him so much that he converted to Christianity and gave his life to the Lord and started following Jesus. And not only that, his two sons, Alexander and Rufus, that Mark brought up, they became, if you read your church history, prominent figures in the New Testament church. So you, you realize what, what this is telling us. It's telling us that this really happened. As Mark was writing this, he said, Simon of Cyrene, you know, you know Simon of Cyrene, Alexander and Rufus' father. He was there. They witnessed it. They saw it. And what they saw turned their whole lives around. And as you're reading the Bible and you see little details like that, the truth ought to bear down on your mind and soul. This is not just a spiritual story. It's not allegory and symbolism. Jesus really did live in this earth. He really did minister for three and a half years. He really was beaten, crucified, and died. And he really did. He really did raise himself from the dead. If you let the reality grip you, it's riveting. He really did go to the cross. He really did die. And he really did come back from the dead. Verse 28. Jesus turned, as he's walking up, he turned and said to the daughters of Jerusalem. Verse 27 says there was a large number of people following him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. And uh, Jesus turned and said to them, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Strange saying here. Luke 23, 27 upstairs. I want them to see this. Large number of people followed. And these women who are mourning and wailing for him are following. And the first thing I want to show you is they were faithful. All of the men left Jesus on the way to the cross. It was the women who participated in his ministry that stayed and were faithful. So he's talking to the faithful, and he alludes to that by what he calls them. He says, daughters of Jerusalem. That's a term of endearment, daughter of Jerusalem. Then he turns and he says, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children, for the time will come when you will say, blessed are the childless women and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. Strange saying. When you study it, most theologians point out that Jesus is prophesying about the coming destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. In the year 70 A.D., 70 years after the birth of Jesus Christ, the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. Not even a stone was left standing. But that's not all he's talking about. Because in verse 30, he says, they will say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. When he says that, he's not using his own words. He's quoting the prophet Hosea. When the prophet Hosea wrote that in his book in the Old Testament, he was prophesying about Judgment Day, the last day 
the day of the Lord. In Revelations, John the Apostle also uses these terms. In Revelation 6, 16, he said, In that day, the people will beg for the mountains to fall on them and for the hills to cover them. So why does Jesus bring up Judgment Day, a Judgment Day prophecy, when he's looking at faithful women who are following, mourning, and weeping about his crucifixion? He looks at them and says, don't weep for me. You should weep for yourself, for your children. And I don't understand the rebuke at first. Jesus, are we not supposed to weep over what they're doing to you? Well, certainly. But Jesus knows that even in the heart and minds of the faithful, they're weeping for the wrong reasons. Listen to what he's telling them. He said, you're weeping because you see a man under, under the sentence of death walking towards his condemnation. You're weeping because you see me and a sentence hanging over my head that's being carried out. What you don't see is that there's a sentence of judgment over your head. What you don't realize is there's a condemnation over your life. What you don't see is there's judgment waiting for you at the end of this life. And you don't understand that one day everyone will stand before the throne of God. And if you're not ready on that day, then you would rather the mountains fall on you and the hills cover you. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, until you weep for yourselves, you can't weep for me properly. Until you understand the danger your soul is in, the sentence that's hanging over you, the fact that you're guilty and judgment is coming, until you understand how dire and desperate your situation is, you won't understand what I'm doing here at the cross. He said, you're crying because you see me suffering. And you say, isn't it sad? But what you don't realize is this suffering is your judgment. This suffering you're crying about is your condemnation. This blood that's pouring out of the broken, broken parts of my body is your penalty. I'm having to suffer this much because this death sentence is also hanging over you and you don't see it. He's not speaking this to non-believers. He's not speaking this to secular people. He's speaking this to faithful people who have stayed with him and are walking down the road. And I think sometimes it's the faithful people who come to church every week that often stand in the greatest peril. Because if you are not careful, you can become inoculated to the virus of Christianity. If you are not careful, you can get so used to the things of God and so used to being faithful that you forget the condition that your soul is in. Sometimes you can get so familiar with the things of God that you forget the reason Jesus had to die is the sickness of your soul and your mind and your pride and your depravity. Even if you've been coming to church for 50 years every Sunday and every prayer meeting, you are still as much in need of the bleeding cross of the Savior as the drug addict and prostitute off the street. And Jesus said, you're standing there real faithful and real pious and real religious with your hands folded saying, how can they do that to my Savior? And he said, don't weep for me, honey. What you don't realize is it was what you did that is doing this to me. It's your past and your thoughts and your pride and your unforgiveness and your self-righteousness that's doing this to me. Don't weep for me until you weep for yourself. If you don't understand what's going on with you, you won't really appreciate what's going on with me. My death is not about me. My death is about you. 
I was studying ecosystems and an interesting news article came up years ago in the ecosystem of Yellowstone National Park. The, um, the managers and custodians of the park got together and they said, you know, this place is beautiful. I don't know if you've ever been to Yellowstone or seen it. It's, it's majestic. And they said, you know what we should do? We could get a lot more visitors, a lot more tourists. We could make a lot more money if we made it safer around here and we just took out the wolves. It would be better here at Yellowstone if we took out the wolves because they're predators. They're dangerous. And while you're walking along enjoying the beautiful views of Yellowstone, you can't totally relax lest a wolf be on your trail. So they said, let's take out all the wolves and it'll just be beautiful. It'll just be lovely. It'll just be a perfect place. So they did. They started removing the wolves. And what they noticed is little by little, the ecosystem began to collapse and fall around them because the wolves were keeping lesser predators at bay, lesser predators in check. But when they took the wolves out, the lesser predators rose to the top and the whole ecosystem started following, it started follow, following or falling apart and they had to bring the wolves back in. And what people don't understand is that the gospel of grace is an ecosystem. There's beautiful parts of it, and there's ugly parts of it. Many people come, and they love what they hear about the God of love, the God of mercy, the God of grace. It's beautiful. It makes you feel good. But when they hear God created you, he owns you. Everything you have is not really yours. It belongs to God. And even though you belong to God, you have lived as if you were your own creator. You've rebelled against his law and his plan for your life, and you've become selfish and prideful. And in your selfishness and your pride, you have wounded and hurt other people who are God's creation. And one day there will be an eternal bar of justice. There will be a judgment day where every single one of us will have to give an account, not only for our actions, but even for our words. And when we hear things like that, we say, no, I don't like that. Take that out of the ecosystem. That's predatory. It's damning. It's dangerous. I don't like that. Get that part away from me. But if you take the judgment of God, and his demand for justice. If you take that out of the ecosystem, the whole thing falls apart. You don't believe in Jesus if you don't believe in a God of wrath, judgment, and justice. Because Jesus talked about it. You don't believe in Jesus or his cross if you don't believe in hell. Because Jesus preached more about hell than he did any other subject. You don't believe in Jesus unless you believe that at the end there will be some people that go to heaven and others that go to hell. You don't believe in Jesus if you don't believe that there are some people that think they're living right. They're going to be shocked when they wake up and receive their sentence. Because Jesus said, he said that on the day of the Lord, it would come as a thief in the night, that you wouldn't know it, that you wouldn't be prepared for it, and that he, he proves it to the faithful, these faithful women. He proves it. You think you're okay. God, that's what, that's what breaks my heart about churches all over our nation and world today. There's so many people you think you're okay. And you think you're doing some wonderful thing by following me and weeping over my cross. When you should be weeping for yourself. And it is because there's a day coming. It is because we serve a God of wrath and judgment and justice that will bring everything to reckon and to account one day. It is because of that fact that we know we also have a God of love and mercy. Because he loved us so much that he took our judgment 
everything we rightfully deserve for how we've chosen to live our lives and the things we've chosen to do. He took our penalty and he put it on his own son, Jesus Christ, at the cross. And not just the cross. Jesus, according to the Apostle Paul, descended into the hell we deserve to go to. He went to hell so we never had to visit it. And if you don't understand God's demand for justice and judgment and righteousness, then you won't understand the cost of your salvation. And if you don't understand the price that he paid for your salvation, you'll never really discern the love God has for you. The love God has for you is not manifested by a blessing. The love God has for you isn't manifested by, I prayed and my boyfriend and I got back together. <laughs> the love of God is not manifested towards you because you got a new car or you got a promotion on your job. How do I know God loves me? Because I know he demands righteousness and justice. I know he sent a law and I know I've broken every one of them. I know I deserve to be condemned and die and spend eternity in hell. And yet instead of giving me what I deserve, he put what I deserved on Jesus. And he took what was on Jesus, the righteousness and the purity and the spotless innocence that Jesus had and put it over on me. That that's how I know God loves me. And when you know that, when you get your theology right and your doctrine right and you know that, it will free you from seeking and chasing after the love of other people. Because when you really know the price God paid, when you really understand that God valued you so much that he spent Jesus to get you, you'll look at people and say, you don't have to like me. You don't have to accept me. You don't have to stay with me. You don't have to hire me. You don't have to claim for me to make me feel good if you turn around and walk away and leave me I still know I'm loved and valued every time I see the cross I'm reminded that I'm loved and valued every time I think about the blood I'm reminded that I am loved and valued talked about the foreigner we've talked about the faithful let's talk about the thieves verse 32 two other men both criminals were also led out with him to be executed when they came to the place of the skull they crucified him there along with the criminals one on his right and the other on his left and Jesus said now he's saying this to the amphitheater that's watching him He's saying this to the people who have been shouting at him the entire time he's been making his death march. If you're really God, save yourself. If you're really the Messiah, free yourself. And as he's lifted up on the cross, there's a wonderful documentary talking about the, the death process that a person goes through when they're crucified. And um, you die of suffocation. Because with the arms stretched out and nailed, and with the legs pinned down, the shoulder blades come together and slowly begin to suffocate you. In order to breathe, you have to push up on your feet to catch your breath. And it's excruciatingly painful because you got a nail through both of them. So eventually, the person dies of suffocation. Horrible way to die. Not only that, every breath is a struggle. And to speak, you have to breathe. So he pushes up on the nails to take a breath. What is he going to say? You know, last words, very important. Last words, people, they cut to the chase. They say what really matters. They say what's most important to them. You know what he said? Father. Forgive them. In other words, honor what I'm doing right here and right now for them. Honor the blood I'm spilling for them. 
They're guilty. They're wrong. Ain't nothing right in any of them. But forgive them. Because really, they don't know what they're doing. They're not aware of it. They're not enlightened in their mind. They don't have the knowledge. They don't have the understanding. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And while he's saying this, there's a thief next to him screaming at him. And this is what he said. Verse 35, the people stood watching. The ruler sneered at him. They said he saved others. Let him save himself. Verse 39, then one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. He's getting insults thrown at him from everywhere while he's dying on the cross. And notice what the criminal said. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. This statement from the first thief is similar to the problem with the daughters of Jerusalem. Neither one of them see the sentence hanging over their heads in eternity. They're just looking at the now. They don't realize that they're lost, so they don't see any need for a savior to die for them. So the first thief says, if you're the Christ, here's how I'll know. Here's how you can prove it. Save yourself and us. And that may sound preposterous to you sitting in the seat, but I want to submit to you, ladies and gentlemen, every single one of us have prayed that prayer in one way or another. If you're really God, get me out of this. God, if you're real, you know, even atheists will pray that. Trouble will come, and they'll go over in a corner. God, if you're really there, get me out of this. Christians do it a little bit more religious. They'll say, they'll get in, they'll get in a situation they're going through sickness. And they'll, they'll go somewhere and say, God, your word says you're a healer. If you're really a healer then, like you said you were, take this affliction away. Get me out of this. You go through a marital problem. God, get me out of this. If you're really God, get me out of this. You go through a financial problem. Lord, don't we whine about financial problems? Lord, your word says you own the cattle on a thousand hills. I just need one hill right now, Lord. If you will get me out of this, then I'll know you're God. And the crowd cried the same thing. He was getting it while he was up elevated on the cross and he was getting it while he was looking down at the crowd and the crowd cried think of the irony of this the crowd cried save yourself not realizing the only hope they had was for him to stay right where he was sometimes we pray against purpose to our own peril God's purpose is bigger than your immediate trouble or affliction. And God loves you enough that sometimes he will let you stay in a painful situation that you don't understand because he's got a purpose for it you have not seen yet. But many people either lose their faith or never accept faith in the first place because of prayers like this. If you're really God... Get me out of this. And if you don't, you're either not God or you're not good. Because a good God wouldn't let me go through something like this. If you're really God, heal my child. And if you don't, you're either not God or you're not a good God. Because a good God would never let my child go through something like this. And if you're not careful... If you're not careful, you build your faith on a false premise. Here's the problem with the premise that the thief was using when he prayed. And here's the problem with the premise many of us use when we pray. Here's the premise. I know how my life's supposed to go. 
surely if you're God, you also know how I want my life to go. I know how much pain I'm supposed to have in this life. I know how much grief, how much mourning, how much loss. I know how it's all supposed to work out. And if you don't work it out the way I have decided, then you're either not good or you're not God. Never considering that what you're trying to do is make God your personal divine butler. And then when he doesn't do what you want him to do like you want him to do it, you turn around and get angry with the Almighty. And when you're facing hard situations, if you're going through a hard situation, listen closely. When you're facing hard situations and you pray, and there is no immediate relief from heaven. Consider that just because you don't understand it doesn't mean there's not a purpose for it. Just because you don't understand it doesn't mean there's not a purpose for it. I tried to find a good analogy for this. And uh, if we have any Trekkies in the room, just trust me, I, I am not. I may just murder this. I am not a fan of Star Trek. Um, but I saw one episode that stayed with me. In the episode, there's a time traveler from the future, and he goes back in time in the early 19th century. And um, there's an incredible woman. She's a social crusader. She's feeding the hungry. She's organizing things for the poor. She's helping people. And she happens to be just beautiful and, and uh, a magnetic personality. And she's just amazing. And she organizes drives to get people health care and to get shoes for kids that don't have shoes. She's just an incredible person. And, and early in her life, she's cut down by an accident. A truck hits her in the street while she's out giving groceries to people and kills her in her early 20s. This time traveler, he goes back and he observes everything that she's doing and he falls in love with her. He just, he thinks she's amazing and he knows that she's gonna die, so he saves her. What he doesn't realize is, is that because of her personality and her fame and her influence, she grew in later years to become a powerful political influencer and she became a peace activist. And she kept the United States, through her efforts, she kept the United States from entering World War II until it was too late. And so all of the world, including America, was taken over by fascists. And centuries of people were subject to fascist regimes. So another time traveler has to come back. And he runs into the first man and he said, we gotta let her die. He says, no, but I've fallen in love with her. And he said, if we don't kill or allow to be killed the woman you've fallen in love with, the whole world will go up in smoke. See, the first time traveler couldn't see the purpose because he was blinded by the love and the immediate need. But there was a reason that woman was supposed to die. And see, when we encounter sickness or we encounter financial loss or we encounter the loss of a loved one and we're in the throes of grief, we can't see purpose beyond the pain that we're standing in. But the believer has to stand sure-footed and know if God allowed it to happen to you, if you prayed and it didn't change, then there must be a purpose for it. And we know that all things, not just the good things, not just the beautiful things, not just the nice things, not just the happy things, all things work together for the good of them who love God and who are called according to his purpose. And sometimes being called according to his purpose will mean sacrificing things you wanted in your purpose. Jesus himself faced this dilemma when he prayed in the garden concerning what he was about to do on the cross. He said, if there is any way to get your will accomplished and I can get out of this, let it be. 
But every believer has to have a head-on collision with that reality of the next word he said, nevertheless, not my will. And some of you are living for the now, not realizing how small of a period of time now is. So fading, so futile, and eternity is forever. And you're wrestling with God over his purpose, which has already been settled. And you don't know it, but you're doing the same thing as the thief on the cross. If you're God, if you're good, if you're real, or the manipulators like to say it like this, if you really love me, God. Nothing makes me want to go back to cussing. <laughs> like talking with one of y'all on the phone after a crisis, and you say something like, I thought God loved me. <laughs> to all the people who say, I thought God loved me. If you're really God, if you're really the Messiah, if you're really who you say you are, come down and uh, save yourself and, and us. What you'll find as you walk with God is God is far more interested in saving your soul than saving your skin. The first thief, he don't care about his soul. Just save my skin. Get me out of this. And what I want you to notice in the text, the crowd that said that to him, if you're really the Messiah, save yourself. And the thief that said that to him, if you're really who you say you are, save yourself and us. Neither one of their prayers got answered. Because those kind of prayers never get answered. Who do we think we are? To ask the Almighty to prove himself to us. The second thief is different. He's watching while he's wailing in his agony. He watched Jesus carry the cross. He watched Jesus get insulted and maligned. He watched Jesus get lifted up and then scream out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And, and when, when the second thief hears what the first thief said, the second thief did something even the disciples were too spineless to do. See, when people would talk about Jesus in front of the disciples, they wouldn't say nothing. They would wait to go off about it till later. You know, they wouldn't confront. And uh, we have a lot of church folks like that today. You know, I don't know. I was raised old school. You know, you insult somebody I love in front of me, I go off. I just respond. I just I have that kind of temper. You know, I'll just I'll say something back to you. You know, and uh, somebody, somebody liked something on Facebook today, and I got a notification of it. It's, it's, it was, they were liking a post of me clapping back at somebody that came from my wife on Facebook. And, uh, and, and you know, if I'm, if I'm there, you know, and you talk about somebody I love, you're going to have to deal with me, you know. You may whip me. You may beat me. You may out-argue me. I doubt it, but you may. But, but you're going to have to deal with something, you know? Don't you wish the people that you loved in your life would say something back to the jokers that are talking about you? Don't you wish instead of coming back and telling you what they said, they had to come back and tell you, I'm so sorry, I went off again. I let them have it. I, just, I opened up my mouth, put both feet in it, just went crazy. But this is why I did it, because this is what they said. Spineless people these days. While this is going on further down the hill, you know, and around the corner of the bend, Peter, Jesus made disciple. 
There was this young girl jumping up, talking stuff about Jesus and the disciples. She looked at Peter. She said, hey, you're one of them. Peter said, uh-uh. And then to kind of prove he wasn't, he started letting his cuss words fly, you know, and tried to disguise his discipleship with his language. And while he's denying the Lord, the thief on the cross looks at the other thief and said, don't you even fear God? You and I, we deserve to be here for what we did. We're being punished justly for what we did. This man has done nothing. And then notice the difference in his prayer when he looks at Jesus. He doesn't ask Jesus to save his skin. He doesn't say, if you're God, if you're who you say you are, save my skin. He said, because you're God, because you're who you say you are, I wanted to ask you if you would please save my soul. And finally, for the first time, a prayer get ans gets answered. And I want you to know more important than your marriage or your relationship with your children or your money or the kind of car you're driving or the promotion that you need or your finances or how much money you got in the bank. More important with your personal happiness, with your state in life. More important than that is your soul. And whether... You're a foreigner that's never heard about it. You stumbled in here today maybe as a guest of someone and you have no idea what this is about. Or whether you're a member of the faithful and you've become callous to the truths of these things, let me tell you something. You will never mature or outgrow your need for the blood of Jesus Christ to cover your sins every single day. You will never stop needing him to save your soul. You will never stop needing him to deliver you from the clutches of sin and death and darkness. You will never run out of the need for it. Or whether you're like the thief and you come to God and you've built a religious system totally around what you can get from him or what he can get you out of. Those prayers never get answered because he discerns the motive and the intent of your heart. And yes, God answers prayer. And yes, God blesses. And yes, God raises people up financially. Yes, God heals people. Yes, God does all those things. But when that's the only motivation for coming, you've missed it. You've missed it. You hadn't got the real thing. And this, this second thief, it's just amazing because... He has no time to get off the cross and go make restitution to all the people he's stolen from. He has no time to go get baptized, filled with the Holy Spirit, with the evidence, speaking in tongues. He has no time to join the church and prove faithful attendance and bring forth the fruit, meet for repentance. He has no time to do anything. Just his raw, visceral faith. I know you're who you said you are. And I know I've been a mess. I'm not in denial about who I am and what I am. I know I'm unclean. I know I've broken God's law. I know I've sinned both outwardly and inwardly. And I deserve what's coming to me. But because I believe you are who you say you are, and because I recognize recognize that you are innocent while I am guilty. I was wondering if I could trade my guilt for your innocence. I was wondering if I could trade my wickedness for your righteousness. I was wondering if I could trade my past for your future. I was wondering, would you save me? And that prayer always always gives answers. And finally, the Lord opens up his mouth to answer a request, and he said, today. Oh, Jesus. Today. Today. You're going to be with me. See, that's all a real believer wants. Oh, I'm about to cut something here. That's all a real believer wants. 
when the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ has truly penetrated your heart. That's all a real believer wants. He says, today you're going to be with He doesn't say today you're going to be in paradise. No, today you're going to be with me in paradise. That day he would travel through paradise to preach to the souls who had been contained in prison. But that day he would also travel into hell's corridor as his spirit descended down into Satan's throne room. Paul told it. Paul tells us that he walked over to Satan and he took the keys. Keys, authority, access. He took the keys to death, to hell, and to the grave. And then he rose up from the dead with all power. Oof. All power. In his hand and ascended into the heavens and is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews said every day he ever lives to make intercession for you. You know what that means? Hold on. Hold on. You don't. You know what that means? That means every day in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, he's praying the last prayer he prayed on earth. Father, forgive them because they know not what they do. Father, when you see them, don't look at them. Look at them through the prison, the prism of my blood-stained cross. Father, when you see them calling on my name, Grant my righteousness, my robe of covering to them. Forgive their sins. Rebuke devils off of them. Forgive them. They don't know. They don't know. They don't know what they're doing. Sometimes when it gets real bad, I normally pray myself just about out of anything. But sometimes when it gets real bad, I can't pray. And uh, so I have some people in my life that have accepted a post to serve in my life to pray for me. I didn't say pray for me. I said pray for me. Do my praying for me. And uh, a couple of them, really powerful. And uh, I called one of them last year. And uh, they begin to pray for me. I'm spiritually sensitive. I could, I could just feel the demonic force that was coming against me. I could just feel it start lifting. I could feel the bombardment that was coming against my mind. I could, I could feel it straightening out. I sat back. hold of them that day and there was nobody in my life positioned to pray for me every single day in heaven Jesus my master and savior my Passover lamb looks over at the father he's adjacent to and he said father forgive him he don't know what he's doing father cover him and bless him Father, strengthen him and encourage him. And I want you to know today, Jesus prayed for you. Jesus thought about you. Jesus loves you. And his cross, not his blessings, his cross is the proof of his love. Stand to your feet. If you don't, if you don't know the Lord, if you're a stranger like Simon, but coming in here and, and hearing this, you feel like Simon did you feel like I need to know that man I need to follow that man or if you're a member of the faithful and you've done a whole lot of weeping but for the wrong reason 
Or maybe you're the thief on the cross, the filter. Only building your life around the religious doctrines and systems that benefit you. God sent this word here for you today. If it's not built around Jesus, it's going to crumble. If it's not built on the truth and reality of the gospel, that you deserved death for your own depravity and wickedness, and yet Jesus died your death in your place because he loves you, values you, and has a purpose for your life. If it's not built on that, it's not it. It's not the real thing. I don't care what you've done, what you're guilty of. I don't care what haunts you when you go to sleep. There is nothing that God will not forgive. There is no soul that God will not forgive if they're washed and cleansed in the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So we're going to do that today. Bow your heads all over the house. I ain't going to make you go anywhere. But if you want to connect to Jesus right now, just lift up your hand where you're standing. Just lift up your hand high where you're standing. Just lift your hand up high where you're standing. Pray this with me. Lord Jesus, I believe you are who you say you are. I believe the cross is proof that you love me. I believe you died for my sins. I believe you rose again on the third day for my justification. And today, I ask you to save me, save my soul, forgive my sins, cleanse my past, and fill me with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Now lift up your hands and just worship him and thank him right where you're standing.